Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing on in our series on the life of Jacob with James Jordan. Here, Jordan's going to be in Genesis chapter 33, verse 18, through Genesis 34, verse 7, and we'll begin to look at the disaster at Salem. He asked the question of whether this Salem is the Jerusalem of Melchizedek. He'll show how this is the beginning of a new chiasm in the book of Genesis. And of course, with this passage, he'll begin to look at the defiling of Dinah. We hope that you enjoy this time of teaching, and we want to thank you for listening. And here is James Jordan looking at Genesis 33 and 34, and the disaster at Salem. We can get back into it. Jacob has come back into the land. He's met with Esau. God has moved Esau to be at peace with him. And in Genesis chapter 34, Jacob parts from Esau in verses 15 and 16. Verse 16. So Esau started back that same day on his journey to Seir. And Jacob traveled to Sukkot, Sukkoth in English. He built himself a house there, and for his livestock he made sheds. Therefore, they call the name of that place Sakot, sheds, or cloud. This is picked up again when we come out of Egypt. The first place we go to is a place called Sakot, or clouds, where we dwell under God's cloud. And then there is a feast every year, the Feast of Sakot, the Feast of Booths, or sheds, or clouds, which memorializes the fact that we lived in lean-tos, sheds, when we came out of Egypt. Well, this is very similar here, and what happens next follows out this same business of anticipating the future. All of this is uh, typological of the future. The next thing we read, verse 18 of chapter 33, And Jacob came to Salem, to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his homecoming from the country of Aram. Several things we'll have to comment on here, but the main one I want to point out right now is this notice that we're coming back from the country of Aram. In other words, we've made an exodus. When we come out of Egypt, the first thing we encountered was the Amalekites who attack us and we have to defeat them. Similarly, Jacob encounters Esau, who was the father of the Amalekites, but everything turns out peaceful there. And we stay in Succoth or clouds, and then we come into the Promised Land, And eventually we're going to get to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is mentioned here. Now, unless you have a King James Bible, (laughs) your Bible does not say, Jacob came to Salem. But that's what it says in Hebrew in verse 18. It doesn't say, he came in peace, or he came quietly, or peacefully. The word for peace has the same root letters or radicals as the word Salem. We know that Salem means peace. But Shalom is written with four letters, not three. You write it S-L-O-M. The O is actually a consonant letter, so it looks like this in Hebrew. And Salem is just written S-L-M without this O letter in it. And wherever this word appears, Salem, it's not quite the same thing as the word for peace or in peace. Moreover, Every time you have a phrase, so-and-so came to X, the city of Y, 
X is always the name of a place. And so commentators fall out on two sides of this, but I'm persuaded that the older view is right, and Gordon Wenham and some of the modern commentators argue very strenuously that in terms of Hebrew grammar, this has to mean Jacob came to Salem, the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. So what Salem this is, we'll get to in just a second. Before I do that, though, I need to take up the first thing on your notes, which is the chronology. There must be about 15 years between verses 17 and 18. Because when we come to Salem, to the land of Shechem, Dinah goes out to visit the women of the land, and from the subsequent conversations, it's apparent that Jacob had only recently come into the territory. You know, it's kind of like these people are here and we can intermarry with them and we can become one people with them. They haven't been living there for 15 years. So when Jacob comes to the area of Shechem, to Salem, that's just before the events that we're about to look at in chapter 34. But it has to be about 15 or more years after his parting from Esau because Dinah was a baby in arms when they came out of Aram. Even if she was even born. We're not even sure she was born there because daughters don't usually come up for mention when you mention how many sons you have. So when Jacob packs up and leaves Pat and Aram and comes back into the promised land and wrestles with the angel and meets with Esau, it talks about his 11 children or his 11 sons. It doesn't say 11 sons and one daughter. But then we don't know. The text doesn't give us any indication. It doesn't say 12 children. But we don't even know if Dinah had been born by that time. But assuming that she had been and that she was born just before they left and came back, for her to be old enough to be deflowered in this story, she's got to be 15 at least, especially in terms of the ancient world. So you've got 15 years in here, and of course, as I pointed out to you before, and as is in your note, if Dinah is 15, Joseph is 23, and he's already in Egypt. So this story happens chronologically after Joseph was sold into slavery. Jacob has already lost Joseph. That's not really important to understanding the text, if it were to be mentioned. We don't even know that unless we put the chronology together and compare it. So in terms of exegeting this story, we ought not to be trying to read into it, oh, Jacob is grieving for Joseph, and that's why he doesn't do anything to avenge Dinah and his sons have to or anything like that. We're not supposed to do that. The text doesn't give us the information... It's not written in such a way that that's part of this story. But in order to understand the actual history of what's going on, we need to know this. When we get to chapter 37, we find that at the time Joseph was sold to Egypt, Jacob was living near Hebron. That's under geography here. So either Succoth, we don't know where this Succoth is, that the name can refer to many different locations wherever you have a place of sheds, this, either this Sukkoth was near Hebron or Jacob had moved there sometime during these 15 years and now he moves to the area of Shechem. In fact, if you notice in chapter 37, when Joseph goes to look for his brothers, Israel, that is Jacob says, his brothers went to tend their father's sheep in Shechem. Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers tending sheep in Shechem? Come, I'll send you to them. You go and see about them. So he sent him out from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. Well now, those brothers are not going to be tending sheep in the area of Shechem after what we're about to read. They can't ever go back to this area after massacring all these people. 
So again, Joseph is sold into slavery at a time before they moved to Shechem. So we put it all together. We come back from Pananarim. We separate from Esau. We go to some place called Succoth, which might be in the Valley of Hebron or might not be. At some time, we move to the area of Hebron if we're not already there. Territory of Shechem turns out to be a really nice place to pasture your sheep. So the sheep are going up there. And eventually, we decide to move to that area. And so Jacob moves to this area of Shechem, particularly to a place called Salem, and then this incident happens. So that's the chronology of it. Again, in terms of the theology of this text, that's not brought up. But if we want to understand the sequence of events, it's important. When the brothers sell Joseph into slavery, they had not yet done this evil deed. But we do find out something at the end of this story, which I'll go ahead and tell you, because I'm sure he won't make it all the way through today. At the end of this story, Jacob says, put away all the foreign gods that you've got with you. And so, up till this time, people in Jacob's household were still fiddling around with foreign gods. And the presence of those foreign gods is linked to the sinful behavior of Jacob's sons. And you can also put that back into their sinful behavior in selling Joseph into Egypt. And getting rid of these foreign gods, which takes place at this point, is a first step in the repentance of this household and makes it possible for Joseph eventually to save them. So again, if we put the Jacob and Joseph stories together, chronologically you can begin to see some aspects of things that aren't immediately obvious. Maybe you remember, I pointed out to you a long time ago in terms of chronology, that Joseph is in prison and what happens immediately before Joseph gets out of prison and stands before Pharaoh is the death of Isaac. And Isaac dies, it's as if his death releases Joseph from prison. So the chronological studies reveal things that you wouldn't immediately notice in the text that are interesting. And so I wanted to do that again with you today to show you when this story happens and in a larger picture how it fits in with the overall narrative. Now we've got to get down to the text itself what is the text focusing on? And what the text focuses on, first of all, is that we come to a place called Salem. And as I say here, the text is clear in Hebrew and is correct in the authorized version. I think it says Shalem, but Yerushalem is actually an S-H sound in Hebrew. So it's the same word, it's exactly the same spelling in Hebrew. No difference. It does not say that Jacob came in peace, but that he came to Salem, the city of Shechem. This city, the city here, and the city in the next story, when it talks about the men of the city and the place where all these men are massacred, is Salem. Now, is this the Jerusalem of Melchizedek? Remember, Abram comes to Salem, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, comes out, and we know that that's Jerusalem, although it's not called Jerusalem at this point. It's just Salem. Is this the same city? Are we coming back to Melchizedek City here? And is this event relate to the conquest of the land later on? Well, don't know for sure. Some have said there's a place called Salim today, which is near the city called Shechem. And so maybe that's what's referred to. It doesn't make any difference to me. If the geography in specific were important, we'd be told it. It's the same name. It's the same theme. Thematically, we're coming to Jerusalem. And when you leave Egypt and you 
spent your time at Sukkoth and you come into the promised land, where you're going is Jerusalem. It takes a thousand years to get there from Abraham, but that's the city that Abraham saw. And Solomon, whose name, of course, Salomo, Shalomo, Salem, is the same word. Solomon, Salomo, the king of Salem, is the goal, the city of peace. Salem means peace, and peace is the subtext in this story. Because everything in Jacob's life up to this point has been conflict, and God is finally given in peace. He wrestles with Esau in the womb. His father doesn't like him. His father-in-law fights with him. His wives are fighting with each other. But God has finally fought with him, and now he's come to peace. He meets Esau, and everything is peaceful. And there is, of course, the calling of the Israelites to minister the good news and to bring the principles of true peace, covenant peace, to all the nations. And so the fact that this place is called Salem or peace, that it's either the same place as Jerusalem or it's going to be linked to it prophetically, is important. And initially there's a troubling of the peace that takes place when Shechem seduces Dinah. And I say that rather than rape because really that's all you can say for sure. Then the circumcision and conversion of the Gentiles, which takes place here by implication, points to the way to true peace under God. And the massacre of these circumcised Gentiles ruins any possibility of real peace and destroys peace and destroys what the kingdom is about and threatens to undo the Abrahamic covenant. So there's a very real threat that takes place here. Before we look at the story, then, let's talk about circumcision just a little bit. And to understand the way that it relates to this story, remember that Jesus came to break down the middle wall of partition between people. That's in Ephesians 2.14. The middle wall is not a barrier between us and God, first of all, there, as it is a barrier between Jew and Gentile and between all other people. Uh, people are estranged from each other, and every ethnic social group in the world is hostile to every other. They're suspicious. They can't talk. They're basically at war. And the gospel changes that. Where the gospel is not strong, as it is saying Yugoslavia, then every little group that war with every other and is suspicious of every other, and you can't trust anything anybody else says, and they're always going to betray you. Everybody's a Judas to everybody else. Only the gospel breaks that down because, first of all, it breaks down the barrier between us and God, and then it starts to break down the barrier between men and women and between Jew and Gentile and between all the other kinds of things creating unity and peace. Well, the actual middle wall that's referred to in Ephesians is closely related to circumcision because it talks about this distinction between Jew and Gentile, and God himself had set up that wall. But what was the purpose of it? The purpose of it was not to estrange Israel from all the other people so that in terms of pagan ways of thinking, you say, well, we're the only human beings and everybody else is a barbarian. They talk like animals. They bark. You know, the word barbar reproduces the way other people's language sounds. When you listen to somebody speak a foreign language, it sounds like a dog barking, barbar. And that's what barbarian means. It means those people over there, they don't talk the human language. They just bark like dogs. We think of a barbarian as a human being who isn't civilized, but a barbarian is not a human being at all. He's just an animal who looks like one. I don't know if any of you ever saw this old movie, Little Big Man, but you'll remember that the Indian tribe called themselves a human being. 
and everybody else is not. Well, that's the way all people are. We're the human beings, and the other ones are not. That's why you can enslave them, and you can rape their women, and do anything you want with them, because they're not really human beings. Well, that's not what circumcision was about. God didn't establish circumcision so the Jews could say, we're the only true human beings, and everybody else can be exploited. In fact, the law says exactly the reverse. You're to serve all the other people. Circumcision set up Israel as a nation of priests and witnesses, and the wall that God set up was to preserve Israel's purpose and witness and not to be a barrier to that purpose and witness. Now, that becomes really important in the New Testament, and it's anticipated here, because the Pharisees and the other Jews of Jesus' day perverted circumcision into a badge of national superiority and into a cultural and ethnic barrier. They say, well, we're Jews, and you're not. We're chosen by God, and you're not. And even if you're a God-fearing Gentile, you're not circumcised, you're not really with it. You don't accept all five. You're not really serious about the kingdom of God unless you're circumcised and become one of us, and we might let you in in that case. Circumcision thus, which God gives as a sign to them, look, keep yourselves pure so that you can minister to these people becomes a way of saying we're pure and we don't want anything to do with these people. Remember that when God sends Peter to the house of Cornelius, Peter says, well, I'm not going to go into any Gentile house. Gentile houses are all leprous. If you come into a house that has leprosy in it, you become unclean. If you come into a room that has a dead body in it, you become unclean. If you go into a Gentile house because they're unclean, you become unclean. So I'm not going to go into any Gentile house. Well, that's not in the law at all. The whole purpose of the law was you are supposed to go to the Gentiles. I mean, the book of Jonah should have taught him that. But God has to say to him, hey, what I've cleansed, you don't call unclean. Actually, it says in Greek, what I have cleansed, don't you defile. Peter, with his attitude, is actually behaving like a dead corpse, and he might defile Cornelius, is the meaning of it here. So, this whole business is perverted. Well, you see, what does circumcision mean? Well, it means you try to make peace with the Gentiles, you witness to them. There's nothing wrong with marrying them if they convert. Joseph is going to marry an uh, Egyptian girl who converted. Moses is going to marry a pagan girl. Ruth is a pagan girl. Rahab is a pagan girl. Samson offers marriage to a pagan girl. I mean, this business of marrying pagan girls is all over the Bible. And the point of it is, if they convert, you can marry them. Well, that sure looks like what's happening here, at least in terms of the symbolic nature of the story, except in circumcision. This perversion of the meaning of circumcision occurs here in this story in a way that's analogous to what the Pharisees do with it. Simeon and Levi used circumcision to erect a false kind of barrier between Israel and the Gentiles, with the result that Jacob can no longer minister among them. I mean, that's the climax. As we're going to see, the first thing in this story is Jacob sets up an altar. Well, we know from all the earlier parts of Genesis that this business of setting up an altar somewhere is so that you can gather all the Gentiles around and lead them to the true God. It's what Abraham does. Jacob starts there. At the end of the story, Jacob says, i got to leave. Nobody's going to believe me now. My witness is completely destroyed. It's like what happens when if a big-name preacher that everybody looks up to is caught, you know, with a prostitute. That never happens, of course, in America. But if it were to happen, you know, it sort of means that there's a lot of people who aren't going to listen very well anymore. Well, 
after this happens, the witness is ruined. And the whole purpose of circumcision is witness. And it's all perverted here. Now, you know the story, so we can anticipate it a bit. We've got some unconverted Gentiles here, and one of them does a bad thing. But when unconverted Gentiles do bad things, it's not supposed to surprise us. I mean, <laughs> what do you expect out of unconverted Gentiles? The point is to convert them. They and we were and are supposed to be priests and witnesses to Gentiles, overcoming evil with good, and that's the true meaning of circumcision, and that's where the story looks like it might go. Because, as you remember, Hamor, after he has his way with Dinah, he loves her, he wants to marry her, he says, I will do anything you ask. Now, that is about as positive as you can get a portrayal of this Gentile guy who wants in. He wants in. Later on, when Tamar, chapter 39, dresses herself as a prostitute, and you'll remember, and seduces, well, she doesn't seduce, she just makes herself available, and Judah is only too happy to take advantage of her. That story relates to this one, too, this whoredom factor. Well, she wants in, and she's willing to do almost anything to get in. The kingdom of God is here, and every man takes it by force. They're breaking their way in. That's almost what you see here. And so circumcision could have meant a positive thing here. But this is where the story starts. Because Gentiles, you can't expect them to behave the way they should. After all, they're not converted. You take that into account and you start from it. What Jesus does. He starts with all these publicans and sinners and says, go and sin no more. He doesn't say, because you sinned, even if you are sorry about it and want to change, too bad I'm going to kill you. That's not the way Jesus acts. That's not the way these guys should act. Now, the cash value of this in terms of covenant history is number two here. The perversion of the meaning of circumcision threatens to destroy the whole purpose of the Abrahamic line. And for this reason, Simeon and Levi have to be isolated and judged. Israel is called to have this witness to the nation, called to be priests of the nation, called to speak peace to the Gentiles. And that's not just in Isaiah or someplace. It's here. Abraham does it. And that's what they're supposed to do. And because of their actions, Simeon and Levi have got to be isolated and set apart and judged if Israel is going to continue to have its ministry in the world. So that happens in Genesis 49, where Jacob pronounces judgments on them and says that they're violent and they're going to be scattered in Israel and they're not going to have the kind of place among the witnessing priestly people that they should have. Now that's reversed later on. Of course, the Levites repent of their sin and actually become the priests in Israel. And they're still scattered in Israel, but they're scattered as priests. And the tribe of Simeon, in Judges chapter 1, joins itself to the tribe of Judah, and by linking with Judah, they become saved, just as by linking with Jesus, we become saved. So both of these tribes eventually are redeemed from this sin, but to start with, they have to be dealt with, or else the covenant falls apart again. We saw Isaac almost destroy the covenant. Well, this almost destroys the covenant. God going to have to go pick another Abraham out now and then have another priestly nation because of what happened, what these guys have done. There's no witness possible. So this is an important event. It's not just an interesting story. It sets up serious problems that show us how bad things are and what Joseph has to do to redeem these people 
and eventually how they have to be redeemed when they come out of Egypt and set up as a priestly nation once again. Well, in terms of literary structure, we have our good old chiastic structure here. We have a setting in chapter 33, 18 to 20, where we come and we set up worship right outside this city of Salem, and we show God's witness. And then at the end, in chapter 35, 1 to 7, which really I'm going to take up as a separate section, but it's linked to this one, we go out and we have to bury these foreign gods, which it turns out were there all along, and we build another altar, and once again it's called Mighty One God of Israel, same name virtually. So those are the bookends of the story. In terms of events, we've got B, Dinah, goes out, Shechem takes her, and then at the end of this section, Shechem speaks to his father, get me this girl. And B prime, Jacob's sons go out. These are words that are used in these particular places and there only. They take, they take their weapons, they take the spoils of the people that they've slaughtered. And then when Jacob rebukes them, they talk back to him and that's where the story ends. They say, should he have made our sister a harlot, treated her like a harlot? Well, he didn't treat her like a harlot, but that's in their mind that he did. And of course, as I pointed out later on, it's they who are going to be involving themselves with harlots in Genesis chapter 38. Not these two sons, but the next one down, Judah. So all of that points to the what they are quick to accuse the Gentiles of, they themselves are guilty of, as it turns out. And then in the middle of it, we've got conversations. Shechem, Hamor and Shechem, father and son, covenant with Jacob and his sons, and they decide to circumcise themselves, and then in C prime, Hamor and Shechem bring the covenant back to the city, and the men of the city decide to circumcise themselves, and they do it. That's what's really surprising in this story to me. I mean, I think you go to a bunch of guys and say, hey, let's get out the knives, guys. I think most men would say, huh, are you kidding? If your son wants this girl, he can circumcise himself, but we are not going to do that. But the fact the whole city does it indicates something very surprising, and I think it's often overlooked that something's going on there that should have been assigned to Israel that God might have been at work. Well, let's see how far we can get. We won't get through it all, but we can at least start into it. To start with chapter 33, 18 to 20, says, And Yaakov came to Salem. It says here, He came home in peace. The word home is not there. That's something extra that he stuck in. And in peace, too, is really, He came to Salem, the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his homecoming from the country of Aram. And he encamped facing the city, and he acquired the piece of territory where he spread out his tent from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, for a hundred lambs worth, or a hundred casitas. We're not sure exactly what this word means. He says a hundred lambs worth, maybe that's right. And there he set up an altar, slaughter site, and he called it the Mighty One, the God of Israel. El means Mighty One. Elohim is the word for God. El means the Mighty One. The Mighty One, the God of Israel. What must we say about these verses? Well, as I've already mentioned, it says we arrive, we've come from Aram, we come into Canaan, and we come to Salem. So the progression here is just anticipating what is going to happen after we leave Egypt later on. And it provides a negative type of the conquest of the land. This is not how you're supposed to conquer the land. Later on, we will be killing all the Canaanites, but we're not supposed to be killing them now. 
it says that he encamped facing the city. And that means that you've got a city here. You've got your city, and it's Acropolis, so you got two sets of walls, and out here somewhere is this camp, and they're in a face-to-face relationship. That language raises the question, what kind of relationship is there going to be? Face-to-face relationships, or husband-wife relationships, is going to be the relationship between Shechem and Dinah, and it's also going to be involved in these negotiations which are face-to-face, and that face-to-face relationship and all the possibilities that might grow out of it is going to be wrecked by what happens. So, but facing the city also indicates that Jacob is there and he will be talking about his God to these people. Verse 19, everything is nice and peaceful. He acquired the piece of property where he spread out his tent from the sons of Hamor and he paid him for it. That's what Abraham did when he was with the Hittites and the other Canaanites. And Abraham made converts among these people, and he had allies who were Canaanites. In chapter 14, Abraham is in a covenant relationship with Canaanites. Avram the Hebrew was dwelling by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, the brother of Eshcol and Anair, and they were Abram's covenant allies. So the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet full. These people can be converted. Many of them are converted, and you don't have to wipe them out yet. And he sets up an altar. He established worship. And that sets up what follows, which is the perversion of this witness by the overweening anger of the sons. It says he set up an altar, or set up a slaughter site. The usual word for altar is build. You build an altar. That is, you gather up stones that you don't use a tool on, just rough stones, and you build it. You build it out of natural stones. But here it says he set it up, which in this context means he built an altar. Why use this word? The reason the word is used is because Jacob is always setting up pillars. He set up a pillar at Bethel where God appeared to him. And in chapter 35, when he gets back to Bethel, he sets up pillars and pours oil on it just like he did at Bethel. And so the use of the word set up here reminds us of the God of Bethel who made promises to him and who has kept those promises. And so the name given to God here, the Mighty One, is referring back to the original Bethel incident where a pillar is set up that represents the ladder to heaven with God at the top. So we've got his ladder reaching up to heaven and God is at the top. And then you set up a pillar and pour oil on it. So the angels coming down on it are like the oil coming down from God. It replicates what you've seen in the vision. And here that's parallel to an altar. An altar is a stone with fire on the top which represents the presence of God and it's a place where you worship God. It's a place where you encounter heaven. It's the gate of heaven. It's like Babel, a gate of God, a house of God. So all of that is implied here and and to use the term set up like you would a pillar reminds us of this. Mighty one God of Israel. It's important. God has shown himself mighty in wrestling with Jacob and then in making peace between him and Esau. That's the even more amazing thing. It's amazing that God would come and wrestle with you, but in a sense it's even more amazing that God would change Esau's heart, at least temporarily, at least at the social level, where he's going to be at peace. And this mightiness of God, which is for the purpose of making peace and covenant, enabling you to live in peace so you can develop and bear witness, all of this is going to be wrecked here.
So again, the name is important in setting up the story. All this nice peace that we have with Esau, and the way Jacob makes peace with Esau is just reversed here. These guys deal with their potential Esau in exactly the opposite way. Chapter 34, 1-4. Now Dinah, Leah's daughter, whom she'd born to Yaakov, went out to see the women of the land. And Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her. Notice the literary relationship there. She goes out to see the women, and Shechem sees her. There's nothing wrong with her. I mean, she's gone to visit the girls. I think it's going too far to try to read into that, that she made a mistake, or somebody made a mistake in letting her do it. It's just a fact. And she goes to visit some of the ladies, and Shechem saw her. And then we read, he took her and lay with her, forcing her, is what it says here, but this is where we get into exegesis, and I'll come back to it. His emotions clung to deny Yaakov's daughter. He loved the girl. He spoke to the heart of the girl. Later on, it'll say he's infatuated with her. The language could not be clearer that he wants to make good on this. So Shechem said to Hamor's father, saying, Take me this girl as a wife. That's always called the rape of Dinah, and the problem with calling it that is that it's really too strong a word. You have this variety of terms in the Bible for this kind of action, and the one that's used here really means he lay with her illicitly, would be a better translation. In other words, he didn't marry her first. But just how much forcing was involved doesn't come within the purview of the text. Basically, it means he lay with her without due process. If you compare this with the very similar story of Amnon and Tamar in 2 Samuel 13, 14, it says he took her violently and forced himself on her. That's not the language used here. And then it says after he finished, he hated her. That's the opposite of what happens here. So the stories are quite interesting to contrast in terms of the way they're written. Well, what he did was wrong. He shouldn't have done it. Never happens, does it? That girl's out on a date with a guy and she lets herself go too far in the backseat of a car. Well, of course it does. And I don't know that there's a whole lot more to it than that. She's overpowered by this guy. He's the prince of the land. He's such a great guy. And she gets herself into... The worst of this is is some type of date rape, but it's not likely even that. She apparently stays with him. She doesn't run home. He wants to marry her after it's all over. It seems like a situation that while starting off on the left foot can easily be fixed and shaped up. It's not the worst thing that can happen by a long shot. It happens every day. Boys and girls get together sexually before they have their wedding vow. Jean ought not do it. Of course, I'm not trying to justify it, but I'm saying that's not the same as this guy seeing her, grabbing her out in the field and having his way with her and walking off. Shechem wants to do the right thing. And I mention that again, it's the language. It's the precise words used here. The word is ana. And if you look at all the other contexts in which it's used, and I'm just relying on the commentators here and what you can get with the concordance, look at all the different contexts in which it used. It does not have the implication of violence or force. It has the implication of the wrong thing to do. What he did was the wrong thing. And the language in the chapter then starts to pile up. What we're told is he did the wrong thing. Then Jacob hears that he has defiled his daughter. 
And by the time this is over, it's our sister was treated like a harlot. There's just this mounting anger and refusal to be placated on the part of the brothers as a result of this. This is very human, but it leads to a great many problems, of course, as we know. Well, the fact that Shechem wants to do the right thing, all this points to very positive possibilities for conversion, covenant, witnessing among all these Gentiles. A lot of good things can come out of this, even though it didn't start off very well. Then we come to the silence of Jacob in verses 5 to 7. Now Yaakov had heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter. But since his sons were still with his livestock in the field, Yaakov kept silent until they came home. Now, I don't know quite what this means. The commentators didn't take it up, but were these guys several days away? Did a couple of weeks take place in here? There's time for Jacob to hear about it. Were these guys out in the field and they came home at night? Or is it like later on when Joseph has to go and find them and they're a couple of days' journey away and all of this happens? I don't know, but it seems to be at least a little bit of a span of time here. And Meanwhile, Dinah has moved in with Shechem. They're living together in a common-law marriage, waiting for things to happen. And we'll have to comment on that, too. probably have to come back to that. At any rate, he waits till the sons come home. Hamor, Shechem's father, went out to Jacob to speak with him. But Jacob's sons came back from the field. When they heard, the men were pained. They were exceedingly upset. For he had done a disgrace in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. Such that is not to be done. Well, now we get the commentators. And they fall out on different sides of this, depending on how prejudiced they are against evil Jacob. But I read, Jacob didn't care for Leah or his daughter very much. He didn't like Leah. He didn't like Dinah. Wish he never had her. And so he has no reaction. Hey, she gets raped too bad. Then Jacob fails to provide leadership. He lets the sons do everything. He's just an ineffectual, sinful man. And it's just amazing that God would ever save anybody like this. This is the Jacob as a bad guy interpretation. I don't think so. <laughs> I think what we have to see is that the story has shifted. Jacob is now a king, in a sense, and he waits to consult his sons to let them make the decisions. The sons are the ones who are going to make the decisions here, and there's reasons for that. The story has shifted focus from Jacob as an individual to Israel as a nation, and that's pointed to right here. He has done a disgrace in Israel. That's the first time, as far as I know, in the Bible that the word Israel is used to refer to a community of people. Jacob's personal name is changed to Israel, but this language isn't going to work referring to him as an individual. He had done a disgrace in Jacob as an individual? No, that doesn't make any sense. The word Israel is being used here for a community. It's the nation that is in view. How is this nation going to deal with the people in this city? How are these two nations going to interact? How is the nation Israel, as opposed to the individual Jacob or Israel, going to deal with these Gentiles now that they've had a tense encounter with them? Is it going to be healed, or is things going to go from bad to much worse? So, Jacob no longer says, hey, it's my decision to make. Now it's a matter for the nation to make. These young men, Simeon and Levi, are, oh, let's see, 7 plus 6 is 13, and Dinah is 15. They are 25, 26 years old. No, they're more than that. They're close to 30. 27 or so years old. They already have daughters of their own. They're married. They've got their own kids. 
Then our daughters aren't grown yet, but we'll see next time, I guess. Hamor and him say, well, you can marry our daughters, and we'll marry your daughters, and that's mentioned several times. The other daughters have shown up around here. So these guys are old enough to go out to war. They're not 19. They're nearly 30. They're in their mid to late 20s. They've got their own families. They are their own men. They've got their own troops. And so they're part of the community to be consulted, and that's why Jacob waits for them, as well as the fact that it's the business of the brother to negotiate for the sister. Remember, we talked about that way back when we started this. And then Abraham's servant goes to negotiate for Rebecca. He doesn't talk to Bethuel, Rebecca's father. He talks to Laban, Rebecca's brother. The brother is the closest. You know this is true. If you've got a family where there's brothers and sisters, especially a younger sister, the older brothers are going to be more protective than the father is. They'll never consent to letting her marry anybody unless a miracle happens, the way brothers are. I didn't come from that kind of family, but certainly seen it. And you know it's true. And so that's the reality. And so these brothers, Simeon and Levi, are the full brothers of Dinah. They are sons of Leah. And they are the ones who are going to be involved in negotiating. So it's also appropriate to wait till they get back so that the negotiations for marriage can take place with them. So Jacob waits for his sons to appear, and the sons are angry, and that's understandable, obviously. The second half of verse 7 seems to give their thinking. This is a disgrace in Israel. Now this word for community, by lying with Jacob's daughter, such a thing is not to be done. All very true, but now what do you do about it? The guys are obviously repenting. They want things to change, but what happens next? You know the story, but we'll have to consider it two weeks hence. <laughs> We don't have time to do any more with it today. Anything real quick on this before we go on? And the question is, to what extent was she willing to go along with this? And we just don't know. We know he shouldn't have done it. Men are supposed to be responsible. <laughs> and nobody's making excuses for him. The question is just, how horrible was the act? And if you just read some translations, then you get the impression that Simeon and Levi were justified because this poor girl was just seized and raped and abused and all this, but that's really not the way the story is written. It's softer than that, and then of course there's his repentance. So. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.